Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, host of the Scene Vault Podcast and the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I spend most of my time locked away in the studio here, but this weekend is my chance to finally get to meet and greet a bunch of you. Come meet me at North Wilkesboro Speedway this Saturday. I'll be at the Moonshine and Motorsports Trail booth in the fan zone at noon. We'll have a show truck there and some cool giveaways as well, so come check us out and say hello. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. Wasn't the first deal they built, I bet. No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce, of UNC Asheville to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap cheapo cars and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then. The guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. At what point did becoming a crew chief become a goal of yours? It was never a goal. It was a necessity. There's four tires behind you, you need to move over. And my answer to Todd was, you got to catch that bitch first. He didn't think I made the right decision, and I told him I didn't really care. If I knew what I knew now, I probably would have done a few things differently. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. <laughs> Good Lord, what was that? <laughs> Steve, what did you think of that, buddy? <laughs> that sounded right out of Star Wars. <laughs> Tell you. We have upgraded our equipment here at the Scene Vault Podcast Home Studio. <laughs> For a long time now, I have wanted to get a set of equipment that I could take with us when we record remotely because it's such a hassle to have the equipment set up here in my home studio and then break it all down and then go set up where we record on location with the interview and everything, then break it all down, then bring it home, then set it up again. So you and I can record our portion of the show. So I've been wanting to do that. And finally I bit the bullet and I did get a new soundboard, some new cables, some new microphones and everything. And I am going to use the equipment that we already had that's what's going to go on the road with us when we do our interview. So I was able to do that. And this new soundboard is the result. And let's just say that learning this new soundboard <laughs> has been a little bit of trial by fire. Kind of a learning curve right there, Henrik. No, that's not kind of a learning curve. That was a great big honking learning curve. <laughs> <laughs> if it hadn't been for our buddy, Jeff Markoski and my friend here in Yakinville, Todd Phillips, I don't know that I'd have it working yet. So that's just the way it goes. Well, I'm glad you got it working. I'm glad you got something to take on the road. And so you don't have to tear all that stuff down and load it back up. I tell you, you wore me out doing that, Rick. And I was just watching you. Well, Steve, I have learned how to use the special effects button so I've noticed. on the soundboard. So you never know when I might break that bad boy out. Maybe on special occasions. <laughs> okay. Have fun. <laughs> there was some pretty big NASCAR history related news that took place last week. Marcus Smith, the head of Speedway Motorsports, was on the Dell Jr. download last week. And they did talk about North Wilkesboro Speedway and how Marcus hadn't given up on it and that there was still some hope that something might take place there. Now, of course, that got everybody to talking. And the next thing you know, our friend Marcus Lamonis is tweeting Marcus Smith to give him a call so they could do a little bit of business on North Wilkesboro. And they evidently did talk on the phone. And Steve, I got to say, I live maybe 25 miles from the racetrack and NASCAR fans in general are fired up about what could happen at North Wilkesboro, but people in this area near where I live, they are spun out and half turned over about well, all I this. Can, 
Yeah, I can just imagine, Rick. I mean, a lot of locals in the North Wilkesboro area certainly want some kind of racing to return to the track, and I can fully understand that. But I have seen that track and the status that it's in now, and Rick, it's going to take a lot of money to restore that track to any possible use. I don't know if anybody out there or any group out there is really willing to spend that money right now. Now, here's what I do think. I think that anybody that wants to return North Wilkesboro to racing is going to have to go to NASCAR first and get some assurances or even some guarantees, if at all possible, that if the track is restored, NASCAR will come back in some form, be it Xfinity racing, modified racing, whatever, ARCA, anything like that. Then I think there's a very good possibility they'll spend that money to return the track. But without the assurances, I don't know that they're going to spend that kind of money. I really don't because it's going to take a lot. I think if nothing else, people in this area are thrilled that North Wilkesboro is even in the conversation. True. Because anybody who has passed by that racetrack in the last 20 years fully understands that it has for all intents and purposes been forgotten. I agree. And that's a source of great frustration with a lot of people because when North Wilkesboro closed its doors, that ripped a part of who we are up here. And I'm not from here, so I can't claim that much ownership in it, but people were very proud of North Wilkesboro Speedway and its place in NASCAR history. So yes, I understand fully that it's going to take a lot to get North Wilkesboro back in any kind of shape to host any kind of racing event. But at the very least, it's in the conversation. So that's what we're excited about. There is hope. And Rick, where there is hope, there is possibility. True. Steve, last week, you and I talked about our favorite North Wilkesboro memories. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to top yours with the guys getting in the fight in the men's room (laughs) (laughs) and rolling around on that dirt floor. But I cannot believe that I did not mention this one. As I've mentioned on the podcast, my wife has worked in this district, in this area for well, more than 30 years now, and she just recently retired. But also, Jeannie is not a NASCAR fan. She did not marry me just so she could get into the racetrack. (laughs) (laughs) She knew Enoch Staley, and she knew Junior Johnson pretty well, but only because she worked in this area. One Monday night, not long before we got married, I go over to her house, And we're talking about our day and Mondays were our press day. So I remember very distinctly that it was our press day, right? Because we had been busy that day, putting the paper to bed and getting it ready for the printer and everything. Well, Jeannie starts talking about people coming into her office that day and negotiating the sale of North Wilkesboro Speedway. Uh Oh, (laughs) one of the attorneys was in her office talking on her phone and from what she said this guy was cussing out bruton smith (laughs) well that's not the first time that's happened (laughs) (laughs) and i'm hearing her say all this and i'm like you know that i work for a nascar newspaper don't you north wilkesboro being sold 
is kind of a big thing. You couldn't have called me at some point during all this and let me know about it. And she was like, you mean that's something that you would like to have known? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but they were in her office talking on her phone in front of her. And she did not call to let me know what was going on. It sounds like to me, you lost out on a big scoop right there. (laughs) Well, at that point I'm interested and I'm like, well, who's buying the track? Because 50% of the track had already been sold to Bruton Smith. And so I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know if Bruton was trying to buy the other 50%. I didn't know or anything. And I asked her and again, she's not familiar with NASCAR. And so she's like, I think it was something like bar, 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 Bahari, Bahari racing. Chuck Ryder's not going to buy North Wilkesboro. (laughs) No, he wasn't even in the mix. (laughs) And as it turned out, of course, it was Bob bear up in New Hampshire who was buying the track from the Staley family. And the writing was on the wall at that point for North Wilkesboro Speedway. But for me, the takeaway from that entire thing was they did the negotiations for the sale in Jeannie's office in front of her. And she didn't let me know about it. Well, Rick, I tell you what, I'll repeat myself. I kind of wish he had because you would add yourself a big scoop. Well, we would have had a big scoop. Well, yeah, I agree. I agree. And you know what? I still married her. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeannie must have had other redeeming qualities. <laughs> Steve, this week, <laughs> we are going to share the first of what will be a three-part interview with Michael McSwain. Now, a lot of people might not even recognize the name Michael McSwain. So, Steve, let me drop this on you. Fatback. Oh yeah. Him. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've heard the name Michael McSwain, but I've always called him Fatback. Well, this week he talks about maybe padding his resume a little bit. When he first got into Winston cup, he talks about the influence of Robert G and Harry Hyde on his career. He talks about trying to make ends meet with team owner, Richard Jackson, an incredible third place finish with Morgan Shepard in Atlanta. And Steve, one of the things during this entire interview from the first episode, the second episode and the third episode that we do with him, one of the things that you will notice about Michael McSwain is that he has no problem whatsoever at all saying exactly what's on his mind. And to his credit, he talks about that being one of his greatest strengths, but also maybe just maybe it being one of his greatest weaknesses. Well, we all like a person who says what's on his or her mind, who comes right to the point. Now, sometimes, sometimes you can take exception to what they're saying. And that's probably the negative side that Fatback is talking about. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the March 13th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup Scene that featured coverage of that third-place finish by Morgan Shepard. It features coverage of Dell Jarrett's win. 
his first win that season, although he had been very dominant early that year, it was his first Winston Cup win that year. Mark Martin won the Bush Series race. <laughs> Shocker of all shockers. <laughs> really? Golly. <laughs> <laughs> and it also has coverage of Steve Grissom's just absolutely horrible wreck there on the backstretch during the Winston Cup race. I remember that. They're very frightening. Very frightening. And Steve, this was the last NASCAR weekend held on Atlanta's original layout, the original right. true oval layout. Right. And I think the less we say about that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Steve, we have new Patreon support this week from David Pierce Sr. and Mike Harold. So David and Mike, thank you very, very much. If you can possibly help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com. And on PayPal, I've got close to $400 in the new soundboard, the mics, the cables, the editing software that I use is kind of outdated. So I upgraded that. So in all, I've got close to four or $500 in this investment. And if there's anybody out there who could help defray that expense through PayPal, uh, that would be cool. So again, if you can help us out on Patreon, if you can support us on PayPal, anything that you could do would be appreciated. The Patreon address is Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support or help us out on the cost of the soundboard and everything, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. Okay, so first things first, Fatback. Yes, sir. How did that come about? Oh, I had that since I was probably uh, 16, 17 years old. I went to work at a friend's garage, and his... Um, I've never told this story much, but, but she's deceased now, so I'll tell the story. Her name was Lisa, and um, we used to call her a few names because she was kind of an airhead. And... Uh, <laughs> Okay, all right. Uh, she she initially done it um, to try to be mean and get me back, but uh, it kind of stuck, you know. And it was I may have been a little older, but it was sometime in that in that area, and it just stuck, and it and it stuck, and it stuck, and it's just been there. You know, I'm 54 now. And it was I've had it since I was 16 or 17 years old. I'm just going to ask the question: Is it something that at least at first bothered you? Um, no, I really never let stuff like that bother me. So, it, she that was her intention, obviously, yeah. but um, it never really bothered me that much. So, when I refer to you, is it okay to call you Fatback, or would you prefer Michael or Mike? It doesn't matter. My mom's got used to Fatback, but so your uh, mama calls you Fatback? No, she <laughs> won't call. <me. laughs> but um, she uh, she she got used to it. Yeah. She doesn't necessarily approve of it. Okay. All right. But she's got used to it. But you call me. I'll tell you what I tell everybody. Whatever you're comfortable with. Well, I'm not going to make mama mad. Yeah. So. At all. So. <laughs> well, how did you get started in racing? So I went to school. At, in, at first. I went to school in Nashville, Tennessee. Where well, at? Nashville Auto Diesel College. Okay. All right. And then um, I really didn't know a whole lot about um, cars in general, you know, 
I was an 18 year old kid out of school. We went up there and learned uh, the basics behind cars. And me and my dad came home and we uh, we built a demolition derby car for the fair. And we had so much fun with it. At Nashville Fairground? No, Cleveland County. Okay, all right. We had so much fun with it that we thought we would uh, dip our feet into the dirt track racing. And um, I had some friends that had dirt track cars. And so we got out and about and found us an old used junker and went and got it. And, you know, as the story goes, it all started from there. Um, Fortunately enough, I was better at building cars than I was at driving. Um, and so as we as we started getting more involved and doing more and more, uh, it got kind of started getting expensive and, and my dad was he worked at the phone company and I mean we weren't poor but we sure couldn't afford a fancy race car. So um, I started working on other people's cars to kind of subsidize uh, my racing. And that's kinda of how I learned. You know, every opportunity I got to to learn, I'd go work at somebody's car. You know, there's a guy named Scott Weaver who comes from a family in Shelby, North Carolina. Uh, they had some Daytona Dash cars. Started to learn about asphalt by hanging out with those guys. Um, guy named Doug Mann Davis, uh, a famous and infamous race car driver, uh, dirt mostly from around this area. Um, hang out at his shop some and learn fabrication skills. Uh, he did some tours with Gary Ballou back in the heydays of Gary Ballou. So even though even though it's all big and wide, it's all small, you know. But sometime after I started racing, I was uh, I took my first plane trip, and it's probably the most educational trip I ever took in my life. Is I flew to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and went to a chassis seminar at Randy Sweet's Sweet Manufacturing with Randy Sweet and Butch Miller. Right. And this would have been in the uh, late '80s middle late 80s and that was the most eye-opening educational experience uh, of my young days Uh, it just made me more knowledgeable about the workings of a front end and how it works so then after that I just kept racing raced a little bit at Hickory um, with uh, Robert Presley's dad Bob and some of that generation Max Presley those guys Um, then I started helping a guy locally with um, he wanted a sportsman car back when he used to run sportsmans at Charlotte and um, he bought a car and we all started working on it well that's how I met um, Robert G and I met Robert G and Richard Broom about that same time um, being over at Robert G's house working on this on this car because the guy was doing the motors Worked out of the back of Robert G's shop, so we um, we would we worked on that car over there, and we got better and we got better. And I just met some people and uh, got introduced to a few people, and then um, that's when I got the opportunity to go to work at um, at Lake Speeds. That was my first job, and uh, as a fabricator. And I was I was never really. Um, shy about I was never scared to say I could do something you know you could say you know can you hang that door just because I hadn't never hung one before I'd probably say yeah <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah so I yeah. went to work yeah. at Lakes uh, and the very first day I went to work there I walked in and the guy who was crew chief says uh, 
uh, we were in the, they were in the middle of a nose change for uh, Ford, and, and he said, uh, "Can you put that nose on that car?" And I said, "Sure." Never done it in my life, but um, that's when I learned that day. I learned about templates and all that stuff, and I put that nose on and straightened it up, lined it up, and the next thing you know, I'm hanging tails, and you know, next thing I know, I'm doing whatever. And so I stayed there for about a year. We never really solidified any um, major sponsorship. Now, were you full-time at that point? That was my first full-time job. When was uh, that? 90 or 91. Okay, all right. You know how that is? It's oh, hard yeah. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to remember. And then, uh, and like I said, this whole time I'm working at Robert G's at night, trying to learn more, trying to get better at the craft. Um and we won one of those sportsman races okay. during this time. Uh, so now that, you're talking about late model. Well, it wasn't late model sportsman by the it, okay. Early so back 90s. then they ran them on Wednesday nights. Okay, so you're talking about the sportsman with that Humpy started it yeah. in Charlotte. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so not not Bush. Right. I can't even call it Bush anymore. We don't yeah. even know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Grand National right. sportsman. Correct. Yeah. But the true sportsman that okay. Humpy started, which was yeah. a bunch of old Monte Carlos right. and stuff like that. But anyway, um, so at that time, I'm giving a whole history lesson during my career here. But at that time, that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> Harry Melling and Bill Elliott Motorsports, or whatever it was called back then, decided to part ways. This is we were we were. Um, Blake still wasn't running all the full-time races, and so we all started looking for jobs. We were just barely hanging on. And uh, so they packed everything up in Dawsonville and put it in tractor trailers and moved it to Charlotte. First thing they did was rented a shop from Butch Mott and Barbara Healy. And Harry Hyde was was running this thing for, um, for Harry Mellon. And... Who Robbie McLeod? So I'm giving a lot of plugs to my guys. Yeah, yeah. Robbie McLeod, uh, I had met him through um, seat guy. Anyway, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on it. Butler, yeah, Brian Butler, yeah. And uh, Robbie said, "Well, Harry's going to start this deal back up, and he needs people." And I said, "Okay, well, I got like a me and a Jack man and." Uh, a tire tire changer and we're looking for jobs anyway so three of us went over there and went to work for Harry so then that's the day I met Harry Hyde so the moral of all that is is I, I've been fortunate throughout my whole racing career to spend time with some of the greats some of the great fabricators some of the great crew chiefs so then I got to spend a year with with Harry Hyde uh, Peter Suspenso was over there then, uh, and some some great mechanics. I mean, I can't I can't name them all. So, what I try to always do, and I tell my children this is, every step I took, I tried to pick up something. I try to listen to everybody. I may not like it or agree with it, but if there's one thing out of what everybody said, then it made me a better mechanic, crew chief. I wasn't a crew chief at the time, but at the time I was a car chief. So from Harry, I started learning even some more details about front ends and geometries and 
the way things work and what changed what and you know I just kept getting smarter and smarter and smarter well Harry see if I can get my history right Harry got it up and going he was he was good he wanted to go back to retire and so Lake and them were coming in so we parted we, we went a different direction that's when you I went parted with Lake Melling you parted with Melling okay yeah well I needed to move up right and I couldn't do it there because of the way he brought some of his Blake brought some of his people from his place over there and it just wasn't there wasn't going to be a spot for me to continue to climb and I wasn't satisfied being I've never been a plateau guy so yeah. I had to keep climbing so Kevin Hamlin we had become friends from the garage or whatever he says he needed somebody to run his fast shop so I went to work at uh, Richard Jackson Motorsports Skoll with Kevin Hamlin and uh, my job was to build cars I didn't go to track at the time so but I was building cars and we had a good run there um, but at the times when Skoll and all that was starting to go away because of all the regulations right. and all that stuff so the second year we had Hooters but we only had it for a year um, and then at the end of the year that thing kind of disintegrated for lack of a better term yeah. Rick went to uh, Ray Mock Kevin went to uh, Richard Childers yeah bunch of the guys went with Kevin to Richard Childers and the ones that were just scared to death everything just disappeared and uh, there wasn't many of us left um, go ahead I want to go back and and ask you about some of these legends that you've sure. worked with because over the course of doing this podcast, <clears throat> we have heard the name Robert G. over and over and over again with the influence that he had on so many different people. Tell me about working with Robert G. What's your best Robert G. story that would describe to people who he was and what it was like to work with him? So... Um, I'm trying to think how to describe him. Robert G. Um, so I don't know if you've ever picked an orange from a tree. Yeah. Not from the grocery store. Right. But an orange from a tree. Uh, they're not pretty. They're rough. they got tough skin on them. They're hard to get into. Most of the time the skin's quarter inch thick. Uh, but when you get inside of them, they're nice, they're good, they're sweet, they're great, right? And Robert G. was that way. Robert G. was hard. So if you walked up to his shop and we were all working, he may not even speak to you. Yeah. Um, but once he trusted you, there was no end to what he would teach you, give you, or help you with. Uh, he was the most genuine um at that time, the most genuine person I had ever met uh, in that industry because he literally was passing it on. And I didn't get it at the time, even though I was a sponge. I was different than other people. I, I was a sponge, man. I spent as much time as I could with him, always. Um, he's a great guy. He named his dog after me. <laughs> I can't really tell you on, <laughs> on here why, but... <laughs> Uh, what what was the dog's name? Fatback. 
Well, man, you can't you can't open the door like that and not expect me to. He said all he wanted to do is eat and shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you got to be bad out of <laughs> or eating crap. Everyone wants that. So <laughs> okay, all right. So anyway, um, one of the greatest people I ever worked with, great dude. And at the time, I was just learning the genealogy, for lack of a better term, around Robert G. Yeah. And it, a lot of it didn't make sense to me until after I had I, I had moved on and Robert had died. And, yeah. and then I started understanding who all was related to him yeah. and who all had influence from him and all the people he had touched through that industry, which I named one a while ago with Richard Broom. You know, they had a deep, heavy relationship, you know, and and, and Richard's uh, daughter, Angie, you know, she died from cancer at a really young age, but um, she was there, and actually she was engaged to the guy who was building the motors. I mean, it was just all, it just kept touching each other, you know, and then Earnhardt and his daughter and... Uh, Stiffy and his dad, you know, it just, um, everywhere you touched, Robert G. had his hands on somebody, you know, Jeff Bodine, uh, I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on, but he was a, um, what he did was the way you, really everything should be, is is he passed it on, you know what I mean, and, and he didn't get nothing for it, I mean, he got friendship and loyalty and stuff like that, but he was a passer on. You know, and uh, there's a lot of races won after he quit racing that he had a part in. Wow. The next guy that you mentioned that we've heard a lot about from a lot of different people was Harry Hyde. Yeah. What was it like to work with him? Um, so me and Harry have the same birthday. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. And uh, a few years apart. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, he he was he was similar. Um, he was very close-minded um, to what he what he knew, um, and he he respected me because I wouldn't. Um, he would tell me to do something, and I would ask. I would explain to him why I thought it was wrong, and he respected me for that. And so he started teaching me more and more and more. And we started doing things together. And uh, he had some things he wanted to do, like on the front end. He would change the angles of the A-frames and stuff. And he would—he had these little, make me, I had to make these little bolts for him and stuff like that. This is when, this is some of the first slugs. People that work on race cars know what I'm talking about. But they weren't slugs back in, so we'd take bolts and cut them in half and make them be a slug, tack weld them in. But... I showed him how I could make a slug, and then we started developing things. So once he trusts me, uh, he he just he gave me everything that I needed to know. Um, and we were part time back then, you know, the first first season or whatever. And so we did. When you're part time, you spend a lot of time together because you drive to a lot of races, and um, that was during the Indy some of that inaugural testing. And we drove up there and we raced it. We raced at Michigan. We went to Harry Mellon's place and hung out and went to his golf course and played golf. And 
you know, we had some really good times back then um, because we were racing part time, you know. But um, they're, they're just they're the legends of our sport, you know. And there's a lot of people in the Hall of Fame. Everybody's got different ideas of what the Hall of Fame should be. But there's a lot of people in the Hall of Fame that should be there. And opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. But there's a lot of people in that Hall of Fame that shouldn't be there. Uh, but there's some guys that need to be in there, man, that really built. Ask Rick Hendrick what Robert G. did for him. Yeah. Ask Rick Hendrick what Harry Hyde did for him. Yeah. There's a lot of people that need to be in that in that Hall of Fame that ain't there and probably won't ever be there, uh, but they deserve to be there. So you wind up over at Richard Jackson's, and that's when Rick Mast is there. And <clears throat> heaven forbid, I I do a podcast that mentions Richard that mentions Rick Mast and and not ask about a good Rick Mast story. What's your best Rick Ooh. Mast story? Um, and don't hold anything back. Well, I mean, I got. <laughs> You know, I got tons of them, tons, and but when I really so in the beginning, we didn't see him a whole lot because he was in Virginia, and we were in Denver. Yeah, and I was in the shop. I didn't go to the racetrack for the first uh, year, really, okay. and I was still young and I wasn't involved with anything other than building cars. Um, but I remember the first time I went to the Bristol race, and he was there. And it's the funniest thing ever. Uh, so he he well, Skull was our sponsor, but he did dip Skull back in. I don't know if he still does now or not. But um, and we were uh, we were racing and up, but I don't remember what happened. But we went quite a few laps down. So then we were points racing, right? Which at Bristol is a job on its own. <laughs> Then uh, he he would come in on a pit stop and get a can of snuff and get him a dip, and he'd just relax in from that on. Oh dear! And so the first time I ever saw, I said, "Y'all just give him a can of snuff," and they were like, "Oh yeah, he's done now, so he's just chilling out." <laughs> so he would dip uh, during the race. Yeah. But he Rick's a great Rick's a great guy. Uh, we um. I was fortunate enough to go to one of his um, fundraisers he used to have up at Rockbridge Bass uh, and see the real guy, you know. Uh, he's a community person and a family guy. He's got a great family, and his, his kids have done well for themselves. Um, you know, he's, he's just Rick. So you're working your way up the ladder. You start out at Lakes. You go over to Melling. You go to Richard Jackson. At what point did becoming a crew chief become a goal of yours? Was that a goal that you started out with, or did that develop over time? It was never a goal. Okay. It was a necessity. <laughs> okay. So I ended with Kevin went to Richard Childers, Rick went to Butch Mocks. Most of the guys went with one of them, too. And there was about six of us left with the promise that if we got a sponsor then I'll start paying you full time again 
So we were just barely getting enough money. I would, my wife can tell you, I wouldn't get enough money to pay bills. So for about two or three months there through December, well, actually November, December, January, no sponsor, very little money coming in. Um, Richard gave me a welder in December. And said he didn't have no money, but he gave me a welder so I could help pay my bills. Wow. Uh, but what happened was, is I was the only guy knew how to set up a car. So Richard says, you're going to be the crew chief. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I knew how to build shocks. I didn't really know. When I say I knew how to build them, somebody had to give me the valve and and I could assemble them, and I could dine on them. And I was the only guy who knew how to do that. So, I'm trying to think of the name of that sponsor. I don't know, it had a star on it. Well, I want to say it was AC Delco, but it had a star on it. Right. But, but uh, Morgan came over there to drive. And Morgan was like us at the time, you know, he, he didn't have a job, and he needed a break. And so Richard promised him, you know, he'd, give him part of the winnings or whatever and, and uh, we went to Daytona um, and I would have to call I would call two people every Monday a smile because it meant a lot and, and they didn't have to do it but they did I called two people on Mondays I'd call Chris Hill at Penske Shocks at the time and I'd call Robbie Loomis at Rich Pace. Wow. And give me a starting spot. And they would. No kidding. Wow. Uh, but that's the way it was back then, man. Yeah. yeah. Nobody wants to see anybody fail. Nobody wants to see Richard lose his race team and go out of business. And give me a starting spot. I've never been to Daytona. I've been to Daytona, but I never set a car up. For Daggum Daytona 500, so they give me a start spot. Well, they give me a start spot before we go test, and you know back then we'd test like three or four times. You test Daytona, you test Talladega, you go back to Daytona to test, and you might go to Talladega on the way to Daytona to test air, bo- air boxes and air cleaners and stuff like that. So they gave me some guidance, and we had some of the old notes, and so we always had somewhere to get going from. So went to Daytona. And done all the testing and everything. We had one car that Morgan really loved. And then our backup car, he, he just he despised it. And as far as we knew, they were identical, but you know how that is. There was no laser measuring devices back then. So um it's a cool story. Not many people have ever heard this story. So we went um went down there and we qualified we qualified decent. I don't remember where we qualified at. Um, but in the twin 125 on Thursday back then yeah um, we uh, got in a wreck late in the race uh, messed the nose up busted the radiator so we you know get the backup car get the backup car off guys and Back then, the way Daytona was laid out, you know, there was a big old concrete padded area over behind 
where everybody would go and work on their cars when they had to do major work. Um, and all that's gone now. But, um, so I pulled it over there, and we, were, and we had the other car over there that we just wrecked. And um, one car was a front steer car, and one car was a rear steer car, now that I'm telling the story. And he, um, he said, I hate that car. We're, we're never... We won't be able to stay on the lead lap on that car. It's over and over. And if you know Morgan, Morgan, once he gets on something, it ain't going away. Yeah. And over and over and over. And so I had the two cars sitting there facing both um, side by side. And I said, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. And uh, he said, what? I said, I'm cutting that body off and putting it on that car. This was on Thursday. And he was like, you think you can do that? I said, no, I know I can do it. And so I cut the car, cut the body off. I cut. Cut the body off the backup? Cut the body off the backup. Okay. From the windshield forward. Cut it at the cow because the cow was tore up and everything. Hood was tore up. Cut it at the cow through the wheel well. Cut all the mounts off at the front, at the frame all the way around. Set the whole thing off as a piece. Radiator, everything. Cut everything off the the primary car and took that piece and put it on there and fixed it and we made practice Friday wow and the only thing you could see was was there was a white tape stripe where we cut it and I don't remember where we finished we actually finished pretty good you know we could go back and look but um but we finished, man, and uh, it just it blew everybody away, you know. So then, back so then. So how long did you work Thursday in order all to night. Well, we worked all the way to dark. You know how back then they'd let you work. But it seems like it's more complicated than it is because we took the whole unit and took it over here and put it on that car. Yeah. And see, luckily enough, back then, um, the guy doing our bodies was a guy named Chip Lane. And Chip was really good about being consistent on his stuff. And so it really wasn't that hard to uh, to interchange. And they weren't that strict back then on on templates and everything. So as long as that overall template fit, they didn't give a crap, especially by that time of the weekend. Because everybody had some kind of damage or they had beat on their car or, or whatever. And so um, we just made it happen, man. We did a lot of that back then, though. You remember, we made a, did a lot of make it happen back then. You know, nobody wasn't paid by the hour. They were paid by the week, and everybody was there to race. Every, you know, they wasn't trying to screw the system or or screw somebody out of money or backstab nobody. Everybody was there doing the same thing, man. We were there racing, trying to win, uh, trying to beat our buddy. And so it's different than it was than it is now yeah. you know it was just it's just different um but you know we had a good we had a good Daytona but that was my first crew chief experience and then wasn't Atlanta second back in or was Rockingham second I think Rockingham was second we had a decent run at Rockingham yeah, well you finished 10th at Rockingham okay but then we went to Atlanta and then you went to Atlanta and Atlanta put me on the map uh, cause everybody's like, 
Who's this kid? Yeah. Um, so went to Atlanta, and Morgan always ran good at Atlanta. And, I'm, and this is before they changed the track. Um, and we just we had a good weekend, man. We had a decent qualifying, and then we we either finished second or third. 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 Um, it was my first. This will be a good story right here for you. You're ready? It's a podcast story right here. <laughs> so this is my first. The first time I ever met Todd Parrott, who ended up being um, my teammate at Yates. So we pitted, and we took two tires. Uh Put a little extra air in the right front. Where'd he finish? Do you know? Dale Jarrett won. He won. And Ernie Irvin finished second. Second. Okay. So he we came out, he came out with four tires. We came out with two. And I don't know where we came out, I don't remember. I just know that we came out in front of him and he walked his butt down to my pit and said, There's four tires behind you, you need to move over. And my answer to Todd was, You gotta catch that son bitch first. And I'd never met him in my life. Huh. And he was Todd Parrott, you know. I mean, yeah, at yeah. the time, he was, you know, he had already been up and coming. Yeah. He had already been going. Yeah. And I said, you got to catch that son of a bitch first. And uh, and we had, had a good race. They raced hard. And uh, and we finished third. And I got phone calls that Monday from people like Robert Yates, uh, Doug Yates, and other people in the industry um, congratulating us because they knew what we had overcome. Right, yeah. You know, no guys, just barely enough for a pit crew. Uh, everybody takes their ass to the racetrack because that's all we got. Um, and we weren't going to win a pit stop off pit road because we didn't, we didn't have a pit crew. I mean, we had a throw-together pit crew, but not. Right, yeah. Um, and um, we held our own, man. You know, and we, we had a pretty good... I was really surprised looking back how come we couldn't really get a sponsor because we had a good deal. It's just like we didn't have the right person working on it. You know what I mean? Because we were showing improvement and we were running in the top fives and and we were just we started going. And then um, I think that's when I think Morgan left first and went to um, the seventy seven car. Yeah. Yeah, I think he left first. Yeah, because I stayed for a little while with with uh, with uh, uh, Nadeau before I followed him. Now, were you a package deal? Was no? Did he go over there and say he you went know, over I'll, and I'll raced? Break. Okay, all right. And they didn't never get going real good. Okay. And I stayed there with Nadeau for a little while uh, through um, what was that trucking company we had? Anyway, was it R and L? Yes. Yeah. Through the RNL first little bit or whatever. But it was never really enough money to race. It was just enough money to barely pay the bills. You know what I'm saying? Uh, enough we, money to put the decal on the guard. We were three or four deep in a, in a hotel room, and wow. Richard had to pay the tire bill when we got there every week. And, yeah. you know, that kind of deal. Right. Uh, but we held on as long as we could. And Morgan called one day and said, We can't get going over here where you come help. And I wasn't really getting paid, so. Anything they paid me was probably going to be about double what I was making. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So I told my wife, and she's like, look, I, I know you love all them guys over there, but they're going to pay you every week. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right. That was the next step. 
So you stayed at the 77th car through most of 1998, but then you moved over to Kel Yarbrough's deal late in the season. How did that come about? Um, I had a difference of opinion with one of the owners. How's that? At the Jasper car. Yeah. Okay. Right. We had had a rough season. Right. Um, and actually, he was the the probably the main owner at uh at Jasper at the time. Not at the. He didn't work day to day operations at the race shop. He was day to day operations at the motor shop. Um. And, you know. He was a. Uh, he was a fairly arrogant person, and. Uh, he was from a different part of the country than I'm from. Um, but we had we had worked hard, and the same old deal. We had a pretty thin crew, and we had worked really hard. And it was during the Charlotte Race Week um, that he um, that we I can't remember the schedule. Back then, there was always a day that everybody took off. I think it was Friday, wasn't it? Might have been it was yeah. Thursday or Friday. I yeah. don't remember. Yeah. Um, so we had worked hard, and we had had a tough part of the you know few weeks and some tough things going on at short tracks and stuff like that. And um, I said, uh, when practice was over that day, whatever day it was, I said, boys, we're taking the day off tomorrow. Everybody's wore out. I'm wore out. My brain's fried. We ain't had a day off, and I don't know when. We're taking tomorrow off. And so we took tomorrow off. Well. We were all relaxing, having a good time, hanging out with our friends. Uh, and he called me. Want to know what the heck I was doing? And I told him, you know, we're wore out. We're taking a day off. So this went on and on and on. So when we went back to work that fall on Monday, he uh, he didn't think I made the right decision. And I told him I didn't really care. <laughs> My guys were wore out. Uh, yeah. They'd worked their guts out. Yeah. And, uh, they earned a day off, and you know, whatever. I didn't care. I, so, but that that brought a good story now that go with that. Got nothing to do with racing. So I had met. What when was that? It was ninety eight? Late ninety eight? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I had met a guy at Richard Jackson's from Chicago. Right. So I was a huge. Uh, Bulls fan still am so he calls and so, I tell you when it was it was, it was right it was either right before or right after Michigan is when I parted ways with that crew but he says hey man I got season passes it's game six for the NBA finals you want to go holy cow man and I was like uh yeah <laughs> So I got an airplane, flew by myself, got an airplane, flew to Chicago, got me a hotel outside of town. I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago to visit, but you can catch a public transit and go right back uptown. So I got stayed outside of town, took public transit right back uptown, went to United Center. We sat in the end they finished in, played the jazz. The end they finished in, about... 15 rows up, right? Wow. And I went in, sat in my seat, watched the whole half, got up, went to the bathroom, came back, sat in my seat, watched the whole half. I never wanted to miss one second 
But yeah. Uh, so I would have never met that guy. God, what's his name? He's crazy, dude. If he hears this, he'll yeah. he'll remember me. Yeah. But, um, but if I hadn't have lost my job, I'd have never got to experience that. So I call it I call it uh, a blessing that I lost my job. But yeah, I went to Kill Yarbers after that. I don't know how exactly. I had a lot of steps, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how exactly to ask this question. But when the team owner called you and and fussed about you guys taking the day off, you said you didn't care. Yeah. You, you stood up for what you believed in. Yeah. You don't seem to sugarcoat a lot. I'd probably still be in the industry. <laughs> so I always told everybody yeah. that the my biggest asset was also um I don't know the word I'm looking for here, really. My biggest asset was also my biggest problem or my uh, biggest uh, issue. I understand. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or um I'm a fighter. Um I'll do everything I can to win. Uh if I'm on your side, I'll bleed with you. If you're against me, I'll do anything I can to stop you. And throughout my life and throughout my career, anytime I saw someone who was against me or against what we were trying to accomplish or against the people that were stood behind me, then I had a problem with it. And... Sometimes it hurt me. Hindsight 2020, I'm 54 now. I was in my 30s then, in my late 20s. If I knew what I knew now, I probably would have done a few things differently. I probably wouldn't have done that any differently because we were spinning our wheels and we weren't going anywhere. Uh, We were nearing the end of the rope anyway because Robert didn't stay there much longer after that, if I remember right. Um, Because they just, you know, that's just kind of how they did. They'd go with somebody for six or eight months and it wouldn't work out and they'd go with somebody else. And that's why they never really got anywhere. Right. It's because they never would build any roots with any crew crew members um, or drivers, you know. And so they didn't never they never really they never really had that good of a season. Yeah. So Michael McSwain is in high school. And he is giving the sister of a buddy of his a hard time and he's teasing her and she comes right back at him and she calls him fat back and it sticks. You're right. It sticks. I think everybody in the garage area always called him fat back, even those that knew his name calling fat back. I know I did. <laughs> well, he said that even his mama is now used to the nickname. Now she doesn't call him fat back. She still calls him Michael. So in order to keep the peace with mama McSwain, I'm calling him Michael. Well, I'm going to have to call him fat back. Cause that's what I've always called him. And I just can't get used to Michael. Well, you know, it could have been worse. They could have called him freaking Sasquatch. Oh, there's only one Sasquatch. (laughs) Speaking of fat back and Sasquatch, (laughs) (laughs) Michael and I are basically the same age. He was born in January of 1967, and I came along in September of 1967. 
he was at Nashville Auto Diesel College at the same time I was heading to class less than 10 miles away at Belmont College. And of course, Nashville is a big place. And that I know of, we never crossed paths. We might have seen each other for all I know, but as far as I know, yeah, we never we never met or anything until we got into NASCAR. But Michael works his way up the ladder. He winds up breaking into Winston Cup racing with Lake Speed's team. <laughs> and Michael shows up for work the very first day, and the crew chief asks him if he can hang a nose on the car. And this is something he's never done in his life. Never even considered it. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Sure I can. No problem. <laughs> That's what you call a big leap of faith right there. <laughs> and again, Michael's story kind of mirrors my own. I don't, Steve, I don't even know if you remember this, but the first time you and I met was in August of 1990. And I had called the office there in Concord. And I said that I was going to be in North Carolina. So I asked if there was any way that you and I could meet. Now, what I didn't say was that was why I headed in North Carolina. So I could hopefully introduce myself to you or to Deb or to Rob Griggs, who owned Saint at the time or the janitor or whoever at Winston cup Saint at the top. That was part of your perseverance and, and <laughs> determination to get that job. I mean, Rick, I really, really thought a lot of you about that. I said, if, if he's willing to drive down here to North Carolina to talk to me about a job, well, that's, that's a pretty big step right there. Well, I don't know how much you thought of me at the time because we did meet, but I honestly don't think I ever got past the reception area. <laughs> you came out of your office and met me in the reception area. Well, you didn't have any right examples either, as I recall. <laughs> well, okay. All right. You do have a point there. Writing wise, I had basically nothing to show you. I'd had one journalism class in college, and I think at that time I had written maybe three or four freelance stories. None of them, none of them on NASCAR, and that was it. But by gosh, there I was, and I was standing in the reception area, and I was still hoping that you'd hire me right then and there. Well, Rick, if I met you in the reception area and you didn't have any writing samples, I think hiring you right then and there was highly unlikely <laughs> you patted me on the back and basically said don't call us we'll call you <laughs> but you kept you you were still determined your perseverance kept working at us and finally you know at deb's suggestion i gave you a shot i wore you guys down <laughs> <laughs> that's about it steve we have had several people here on the podcast mention robert g and yes, Robert G was Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s former father-in-law, and he is Dale Jr. and Kelly's grandfather. But Robert G had a huge impact on a lot of people in the garage, including Michael. Yeah, Robert G was a, a car owner and a mechanic who had great influence throughout the garage area because he helped so many people in racing, in NASCAR, uh, get to where they were many times when somebody needed a chance to do something, Robert G was the guy that took that person in. So his influence really spread out among a lot of people. They'll tell you that to this day. Dale jr. And Kelly are a part of Robert G's family tree. 
but then when you consider his NASCAR tree and all the people that he came into contact with and had some sort of influence on, it is pretty staggering. And you can also say that about the other guy that I mentioned in the intro that Michael had worked with Harry Hyde. Absolutely. And he worked with Harry Hyde when they were both with Melling racing after Bill Elliott went to drive for junior Johnson and Harry moved the team up from Dawsonville to Charlotte. And so when you consider Robert G and Harry Hyde, that's a pretty sporty little resume there. You couldn't get two better teachers than those two guys, especially Harry Hyde. When it came to being a crew chief, Harry Hyde was a master crew chief for many great drivers for decades. Michael went to work for Richard Jackson and he was there with our buddy, Rick Mast. Heaven forbid anybody on this podcast be connected with Rick Mast and we not mention Rick Mast, <laughs> but then Rick goes to drive for Butch Mock and crew chief Kevin Hamlin moves over to Richard Childress racing with Mike Skinner. Some of the crew guys evidently went with Rick and some went with Kevin, which pretty much left a bare bones remnant at Richard Jackson's precision products yeah, team. At that point in time, Richard Jackson's team was nowhere near what it used to be. Michael knew how to build some shocks and he knew how to set up a car. <laughs> and so now he's the crew chief. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't anything from what he said. It wasn't anything that he had ever pursued. It was basically kind of a tag uriot situation. Yeah. The way the situation fell out at Richard Jackson racing, the crew chief job just basically fell in the fat back's hands. 1997 Morgan Shepard is now the team's driver. And at Daytona Morgan got swept up in this crash during his qualifying race. And he did not like the backup car. Absolutely positively. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Did not like the backup car. So. I know you remember the big concrete pad there in the garage at Daytona. And so that night they went out to that concrete pad. Michael is the crew chief. He has the body cut off the backup and they proceeded to move the whole thing over to the primary car that had been wrecked in the 125. And the crazy thing about it was they wrecked in the 125. They swapped the bodies out. And they were, from what Michael said, again, they were ready for practice on Friday. Now that shows you how hard NASCAR teams work when they want to reach a specific goal. These guys knew the car that Morgan did not like, could not be used. They basically swapped it out, all that in a period of time from a Thursday to practice the following Friday. That is really hard work. And that's exactly what a lot of teams do, Rick. Well, Steve, here's the thing about all that work. Morgan did run fairly well in the 500, but then he got caught up in a, the big one at Daytona. It's not the wreck yeah. where Dell Earnhardt flipped or anything, but there was another wreck that ended the race under caution. There were 10 or 11 cars involved. And after all that work, after all that effort, the team wound up finishing 29th in the 42 car field. Well, that's just the way racing goes, Rick. Let's, these guys worked so hard to get a good car in the race and they ran decent in the race, but we all know that racing, <laughs> nothing is predictable in racing. Nothing is predictable. And when it comes to a situation where they have a wreck that 
forces them into a lower position than they ever thought they should have earned. That's just tough. But that comes with the game. Well, then they go to Atlanta. And Michael tells Morgan to stay out on the racetrack during a late race caution to give him track position. He winds up as the leader, and Del Jarrett is behind him. And Del Jarrett has fresh tires. Morgan does not have fresh tires. And Todd Parrott is DJ's crew chief. He comes over to Michael just before the restart and said, hey, there's four tires behind you. Move out of the way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Michael, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that he went full fat back here, <laughs> but fat back got his back up a little bit. And he said, you got to catch that son of a bitch first. <laughs> <laughs> boy, boy, fat back. That's telling him like it is. <laughs> and Steve, we're going to talk more about that race in our second segment, but that was Michael McSwain. And he was not going to back down from anybody not even Todd Parrott. And so that's what it meant to be Michael. Well, who can blame him? I mean, sometimes you've got to be stubborn and hard-headed to be a crew chief. Morgan left later in the 1997 season to go drive the Jasper Motorsports number 77 car. And not long afterward, Michael followed him over there. I don't know that they were a package deal, but I think Morgan got over there and saw what was going on and he called Michael and said, Hey, we need some help over here. And yeah. Michael followed him. Well, the long story short is the team still struggled and Morgan was replaced by Robert Presley and Michael lets his guys have a day off during the fall, October race week in 1998. And <laughs> the owner wanted to know why the crew guys were having a day off during the middle of the season, during the middle of a race week at Charlotte at the time, I think Friday was an off day. There was a hole in the schedule where the cup guys didn't have to come in or anything. And yeah. Michael gave his guys a day off. They had run ragged and he felt like they needed time to relax. The owner didn't like it. He went to Michael. They have a come to Jesus meeting. And Michael says, Hey, I basically don't care what you think. We needed the day off. And so we're going to have the day off. Not long afterwards, yeah. Michael is out. <laughs> well, you can understand why you go at loggerheads with the team owner. And the final say is always going to be the team owners, no matter how much sense the crew chief might make. However, what that did do it gave him the time and the freedom to be able to go to game six of the NBA finals that year. And he had a buddy in Chicago and this buddy had some tickets. They were evidently pretty good tickets. And that was the game when the Chicago bulls beat the Utah jazz and Michael Jordan hit that famous shot in the last few seconds to kind of seal the championship. But there Michael is at that end of the court, Everything's happening in, right in front of him, and he's watching his Bulls beat the Jazz. That's cool, and that's fake. That's fake. Think about this. Michael goes head-to-head -head with his team owner, obviously loses his job. Now, if that had not happened, he wouldn't have been there to see that important game and see Michael Jordan make that historical game-winning shot. I tell you, it's all about fate sometimes. 
and Steve, you and I got to do some incredibly cool stuff through our association with NASCAR. I know that you've been to the white house. I got to go to Japan for the first exhibition race. I got to go to backstage at a Van Halen concert. I've talked about both of those before, but what would you consider to be at the top of the list of things that you got to do because of your association with this sport, other than watching me collect my first major league foul ball? <laughs> well, Take that I'll off you, the, the table. I, <laughs> that was a hoop, by the way. Um, <laughs> the White House really, the visit to the White House is really, really stands out. Happened back in 78, I do believe, and Jimmy Carter had been elected president, and he had done many NASCAR events during his campaign. And he said if he ever won the presidency, NASCAR was going to be invited to the White House for dinner. And that's exactly what happened. I got to tell you, it was a great, great spectacle in a lot of ways. Willie Nelson playing the music. They served up country food, ham, you know, cornbread, things like that. But they had five show cars showed up. Petty, the Wood Brothers, K&K. And they were in a circle at the entrance to the White House. Now, I stood there and watched because I wanted to see what was going to happen. And by that, I mean, the United States Marine Corps band was playing while everybody was during a reception and watching these cars parked around in a circle. They kept playing. They played. And finally, when they stopped playing, I told the person next to me, watch this. Watch the band. Sure enough, they dropped their instruments and just sprinted over to those cars. They had to see those cars. They were all over them, looking inside of them, looking the outside of them, feeling them with their hands, everything like that. And David Pearson came in with me and said, boy, they were liking that, aren't they? I said, they sure are. You know, this circle we got here going up to the White House, that's a, that's a nice little four-eighths mile track. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it is. He said, we got to stage your race. <laughs> Fire up, boys. David was ready to, he was ready to show off. That was pretty cool. Well, as I mentioned, I loved going to major league and minor league baseball games. I'll never forget the hotel that I had in Manchester, New Hampshire. It overlooked the local minor league baseball stadium. And so I could open the window to my room and overlook the stadium and watch the game. So that was cool. And then the patio to the restaurant there, it also overlooked the stadium. Also, I know that you're a big Civil War buff. I am too. So anytime that there was a Civil War battlefield anywhere near a NASCAR facility, I was there. And Gettysburg is one of my favorite places ever. Mine too. I agree. I mean, that is absolutely hallowed ground. And I got to go to Antietam, Shiloh, Fredericksburg, Chickamauga, Richmond, Stones River, you name it. I've been to several battlefields and it was just because I was able to go there on my travels in the Winston cup circuit. I went to a Richmond race one year and I stayed at a hotel downtown Richmond. It was an older hotel, but a great place. Now it was located directly across the street from the state Capitol, beautiful building beautiful grounds. This particular day, I was going back toward the hotel and a state trooper stopped me. And he says, sir, you can't go down that road. I said, well, officer, I'm staying at this hotel right here in front of me. And a bellman came out and said, yes, sir, he is a guest. So he let me go to the hotel and I went upstairs to my room 
and I looked out the window toward the state capitol. What the heck was going on? And there, on the state capitol grounds, was Queen Elizabeth of England. She was there on a special meeting with the Virginia legislator, and she was she was touring around the state capitol building, stopping at little groups of people who were giving her bouquets of flowers that she would take and turn around and hand to her lady in waiting. Well, she went up the stairs of the Capitol and then turned around and faced me across the street and waved. So naturally, I waved back. So here I am waving to Queen Elizabeth in Richmond, Virginia, all because of NASCAR. <laughs> Come on. Here I am talking about my little minor league baseball games and going to a Civil War battlefield, and you're hanging out at the White House and with Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> what can I say, Rick? <laughs> How far uh, away from her were you? About 200 yards or less. Uh, so you could actually tell it was her? Oh, sure. There was no mistaking it was her. It was really something to see. But like I said a little bit earlier, what was really cool is that when she turned around to wave, she was facing right at me. She could have seen me in my window. So I waved back. <laughs> that was fun. Here's something to consider. I wonder if she subscribed to Winston Cup saying, <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's Steve Wade. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing, Steve, this week in this section. As I mentioned, Michael does not sugarcoat a lot of things. He pretty much says what's on his mind when it's on his mind. And yes, he does have a little bit of a temper. And he did say that that was his greatest asset, standing up for what he believes. But also he said that it might have been maybe his biggest issue. And he did say if it wasn't for some of that stuff, he might still be in the industry. And so, Steve, that was pretty powerful, what he said. And he, he was kind of reflective in saying that. Well, I think there is a fine line between saying exactly what you want to say and then saying a little bit more that's damaging to what you want to get done. The ideal thing is to learn when to stop, is to learn when you've said enough, and you've made your point. That's not always an easy thing to do, Rick. It's true of a lot of people who are trying to make a point that they just go a little bit too far and it can be harmful, but I'm not suggesting that anybody <laughs> do anything different than they're doing. I'm not, a, I'm not a counselor. I don't know how to do that, but I am saying that there is a point and more often when you realize where that point is and that's where you stop, that's going to be beneficial. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. 
Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep from my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter SCENE at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com The March 13th, 1997 issue of Winston Cup scene carried coverage of that year's spring Atlanta race weekend. And Dale Jarrett was caught up in the backstretch crash in which Dale Earnhardt flipped during the 1997 Daytona 500. But then he went to Rockingham and he led 323 laps before finishing second to Jeff Gordon. So he dominated that race only to come up a little bit short to Jeff. Then he goes to Richmond, the next race, and he led 172 laps there before taking third at the end of the day behind winner Rusty Wallace and second place Jeff Bodon. He runs that well in those races, all of those races, only to finish, what, second and third and stuff like Doesn't get the job done. Boy, you got to know they've got to be frustrated for DJ. You got to close the deal. Well, in Atlanta, That's right. he closed the deal. <laughs> <laughs> he led 253 of 328 laps and he beat Robert Yates racing teammate, Ernie Irvin to the finish line by 1.38 seconds. Now this is how well things were going for DJ that year. Lap 191, he's in the lead. He's comfortably in the lead and he slows coming off turn four because of a faulty ignition box and he loses the lead to Ernie. He immediately switched to a backup ignition box and he set sail again and he retook the lead just four laps later. Now he overcomes something like that. That's got to be a signal that the day might be his day. Other cases where that has happened, it has ruined a driver's day. Sure. But not DJ. DJ said in this issue, the call went out coming off turn four and the car just quit running. It took me a second to remember where the switches were. I went through the box and through the distributor and finally got to the call. It fired up and started going again. That was a terrible feeling. I've had it happen before, but never when I've been leading a race and had a car that good. After that, it didn't skip a beat. Which is a very good thing. And like I said, when it's your day, it's your day. I believe there's more to this story. Well, here's how crazy that deal was. The fix created another problem. And even that problem didn't derail their day. DJ said in the story, I fired it back up when I switched it and it blew apart a header. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we had that problem the rest of the day. A couple of times I thought I had lost a cylinder because of the sound of it, but it really didn't hurt anything. Can you believe that <laughs> going through all that? He thinks he's lost a cylinder and he still can't be passed for the lead and the win. So the ignition box goes out. He switches over to the second ignition box that blows up the header and he's still <laughs> out front. <laughs> Talk I'm, about having a I'm, bulletproof race car, man. Oh, the fates were smiling on him that day. <laughs> well, then Morgan finished third. And he took the lead when he didn't pit during a caution period that began on lap 255. 
He did pit for tires during another caution that began on lap 269. That dropped him back to 10th. And after a red flag period for Steve Grissom's crash that I mentioned in the intro and that we'll talk about here in a second, Morgan took off through the field. And Steve, he got to Ernie, who was in second place. And he tried everything he could think of to get past Ernie, but just couldn't do it. And Steve, I'm going to be completely honest. As a journalist, you are supposed to be unbiased. You are not supposed to root for who wins. Well, that day in Atlanta, on pit road, I was so rooting for Morgan Shepard to win that race. And again, I don't have anything against Dale Jarrett, don't have anything against Ernie Irvin, don't have anything against Robert H. Racing, but I had been on Morgan Shepard's Christmas trip three times to that point. So I had gotten to know him and his wife, Cindy. And also, it would have been one heck of a story. Well, you're right about that, Rick. It would have been one heck of a story. And, you know, given your association and friendship with Morgan, there's no way you can stop yourself from rooting for him to do well. It's just natural. It's just a human instinct thing to do. I got to do the sidebar on Morgan that day. And that was so cool to be able to be in the middle of that and talk to Michael and talk to Morgan and see the smile on Cindy's face and everything. And after we talked about the particulars of the race, the pit stops and trying to catch Ernie and all that kind of thing, I asked Morgan what it meant to him personally. And Morgan said, don't make me cry because I'm trying to hold it back to be back in a car. That's this good. And with good people, man, I can't hardly talk about it. So that was pretty special. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And Morgan knew the situation he was racing in. So for him to do that well in that situation, naturally, that was a very, very happy moment for him. And Michael said in the sidebar, there ain't but a few of us. I think there's less than 20 people on the team. Weekend help the whole deal. We work a lot of hours and a lot of weekends. A lot of wives are mad, but days like this, it pays off. Everybody had us washed up. As far as we were thought of, we were over with, done with. It's the same thing they thought about Morgan. But we've all worked hard, and I think us and Morgan alike have proved that we're still competitive. Almost no one could have predicted that that team with Morgan would have finished third place that day. So you can fully understand where Fatback is coming from. There was a restart on lap 283 and the field made one complete circuit before it appeared to stack up coming off turn two. The next time around Steve Grissom spun to the inside of the track and he backed into the wall so hard that it flipped him onto his roof. The fuel cell was ripped completely out of the car, gas spilled out and caught on fire. The entire rear axle and wheel assembly was ripped out and Kenny Wallace hit that. And Steve, I was standing on pit road. And so I was looking across the infield over to turn three and I will never, ever forget the sight of that black smoke rising up over turn three. And all I could think of was fireball Roberts. Right. at Charlotte many years before. Uh, yeah, I can understand what you were feeling, Rick, because I was up in the press box and I saw that black smoke pouring up into the air. I could not see Steve's car. So naturally, I thought his car was at the bottom of that smoke, all in flames. Well, what had happened, as I mentioned, 
the fuel cell was ripped completely away from the car and the gas spilled out onto the racetrack. And that was what was on fire. Steve's car, where he was, the cockpit was never on fire. He was just upside down and <laughs> he, yeah. he certainly had problems, but fire wasn't one of them. No doubt about that. And you know, fortunately his car was not on fire, but the real culprit in that situation was the fuel cell being ripped out of the car and the gasoline spreading out all over the place. That is a recipe for disaster. Fortunately, that didn't happen to Steve. Well, Steve, the incredible thing about all that was a few minutes later, there I am with the rest of the media talking to Steve Grissom and he's none the worse for wear. He did take a little bit of time to collect his breath after leaving the infield care center, but anybody who was in the media at that time and, and working on that particular story. I don't think that there was a one of us that didn't understand him wanting to collect his breath a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, give him, yeah. give him that space. So anyway, when we did talk to him, Steve said, I just skinned my ankle a little bit. Other than that, I feel great. The guys who got to the car first were super in the way they handled me and got me into the ambulance here in the infield care center. My hats off to the doctors and everybody. They did a super job and I'm fine. I can't wait to get back to Darlington. You know, this is a testament to how safe the cars were back then. Now they're much safer now. I will agree to that. But back then for that time, they were very, very safe. And there's also the fact that the rescue workers and the doctors at the NASCAR tracks did excellent jobs. And I think Steve giving them credit was a very good thing. Then also Jeff Gordon won that year's Daytona 500 and he won again, the very next race at Rockingham, but at Atlanta, he blew an engine after just 59 laps and was credited with last place in the 42 car field. That's what you call racing. You never know what's going to happen. A team is up one day and down the next. You're in the penthouse one week and the outhouse the next. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Jeff said in one of the notebook items, it was like a huge rumbling, a huge explosion under the hood. It blew up and it blew up big. <laughs> now, of course, Jeff Gordon won the Winston Cup championship that year, but 1997 was my first year covering the Bush series. So most of my focus, most of my attention was on the Bush series. And so I did not remember the Winston cup championship battle being as close as it was that year. Jeff won the Winston cup championship by just 14 points over DJ and 29 points over Mark Martin. Well, I'll be honest with you, Rick. I knew that Jeff Gordon won the championship that year, but I did not remember that it was that close. And Hey, there was no chase involved. There was no round of four. There was no don't, playoff. Don't, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah, I said it. And I ain't taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of Jeff Gordon, in the photo spread of the cup race in this issue, there is a shot that was taken by Chad Fletcher of Ricky Vires. And Ricky Vires had worked for Richard Childress Racing in the past, but he was then with Jeff Gordon and Hendrick Motorsports, and the Rainbow Warriors. Well, this photo of Ricky that Chad took is of Ricky Vires, and he is still fully clad 
in his Rainbow Warriors DuPont uniform, and he is changing tires on Dell Earnhardt's car after Jeff had fallen out of the race so early. It was almost jolting to see this photo with Ricky in that brightly colored suit changing tires on the black number three car driven by the Intimidator. <laughs> well, Rick, that was not unusual, and it still is not unusual. Now, I'm going to sound a bit corny here, but NASCAR and the competitors is indeed a big family. I don't think there's any question about that. And when someone needs help, well, someone else comes over there to help them. And that includes that when something happens on the track and one team is pretty much out of the race, but has plenty of personnel left over, another team that needs some help personnel-wise has no problem asking for that help. And that team has no problem Give them that help. I know it looks a little weird, but it's exactly the way things are and have been. Well, Steve, when we talked to Andy Petrie back a year before last, he shocked me when he said that he and Ray Evernham, Jeff Gordon's crew chief, had such a close working relationship and a friendship. And he said then that every Monday morning after a race weekend, he and Ray kind of debriefed and they shared everything, all their notes, everything. And so I thought that that might have something to do with this photo. Well, I texted Andy and he texted me right back. And if I'd been thinking, I would have realized it for myself. But by that time, he was already into team ownership. He was already working on the 33 car for Robert Presley. So I don't know what was going on with this photo of Ricky Byers changing tires on Dell Earnhardt's car in his Jeff Gordon uniform. But like I said, man, that just looks so out of place for lack of a better way to put it. I know. I know that it did, but Ray and Andy's friendship and cooperation and working together is indicative of what the atmosphere is in NASCAR. That kind of relationship is all over the place. So it's not unusual to see a member of one team helping out a member of another team. This just in for breaking news. Mark Martin won the Bush series race that weekend in Atlanta. Stop the presses. <laughs> and I'm going to just go ahead and admit my race lead was pretty short. And that has always bothered me a little bit because first of all, it was Mark Martin in the Bush series and Atlanta that year was already his third straight win in the Bush yeah. series. So there'd been four races to that point. Randy LaJoy had won the season opener at Daytona. And then Mark Martin took over and won the next three. <laughs> so that was my first season as Bush series editor. And I gotten to write about Randy LaJoy and Mark Martin and Mark Martin and Mark Martin. <laughs> <laughs> And Mark was always just so matter of fact after winning a Bush race in general, he was matter of fact, but after he had been as strong as he was that day in Atlanta, he was even more matter of fact. So there wasn't a lot that you could pull out of him. Yeah, Rick, I can understand why your race lead was a very short one. I mean, after all, you got two guys winning the first four races of the year, one of them three in a row. I mean, how much can you say about that? Let me give you an example. Back when I was at the Ronald Times, a couple of races at Bristol, Kale Yarbrough 
won that race by seven laps and nothing happened during that race at all. I don't even know if he was ever passed unless, unless he made a pit stop. I mean, it was just a dull race. What are you going to say about it? I mean, I finished my story and had it sent back to Roanoke inside 30 minutes. <laughs> so I spent the rest of the day watching the fans file out, and there weren't too many of them, and all the teams load up to go home. That's all I could do. Well, my buddy Jamie Reynolds was on the show when we talked to Tommy Houston. He had worked for Tommy Houston the year before in 1996, and he and I were going to go to a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert that night in Atlanta. So, yes, it was Mark Martin win. Yes, there wasn't a lot that Mark said, but I also kind of hustled out of the track <laughs> to get to the concert. And, Steve, I'm going to be honest with you. I do not remember another time in all my time at scene that I did that. I do not remember ever rushing through a race lead or anything that I had to write to get to something else that I wanted to do away from the racetrack. So I don't know. I've always felt a little bit guilty about that one. I was the perfect opportunity. I mean, if it had been any other finish with any other driver other than Randy LaJoy or Mark Barton. Well, yeah, you probably would have had to stay a little bit longer than you wanted to, to tell the story, but the circumstances, Rick were in your favor. <laughs> so all you had to do is knock that sucker out and get to that concert on time. Well, we did go to the concert and I think, I think it was Stephen Curtis Chapman <laughs> because we were so far up in the rafters. <laughs> you were closer to Queen Elizabeth than I was to Stephen Curtis Chapman. <laughs> but after working with Tommy Houston the year before, Jamie was then in his first year in Winston Cup. And Steve, at the time, he was working with Larry Hedrick Motorsports and driver Steve Grissom. And the next day after that concert, after the Winston Cup race, I will never forget the look on Jamie's face in the garage. He took me over to the car and he lifted up the tarp. And man, I, I will never forget the sight of that car. And I absolutely could not believe that anybody had walked away from that thing. Well, I think that's a testament to the safety of the vehicles again at that particular time. This race weekend in Atlanta was the final race weekend before it was dug up and reconfigured and flipped and the dog leg was added to the front stretch. And I, I don't know. I, I'll just say this. I miss the old Atlanta. Well, you're probably not the only one. You, you remember now for many years, fans have complained about the one and a half mile track, call them cookie cutters. And in a sense, that's what Atlanta became. I miss that true oval because of those long sweeping turns. You were in the turns way more than you were on straightaways, but I, I just thought that was a, a unique configuration. But hey, Bruton Smith can do whatever Bruton Smith wants to, and he can have lawyers cuss him. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Gordon and Chad Little had been involved in an accident on the last lap of the Richmond Winston Cup race. And on the cool down lap, quote unquote, cool down lap, Chad rammed into Robbie and then Robbie tore into Chad. And as a result, Chad was fined $10,000 and Robbie Gordon was hit with 5,000. 
pretty stout fines at that time. And I tell you what, I think NASCAR did that for one particular reason. NASCAR doesn't really mind it if two drivers get into a scuffle on pit road or in the garage there. They don't object to that too much. What you can't do is use cars to vent your differences. And that's what these guys did. And therefore, the fines were forthcoming. Chad said we weren't even on the same lap. I was going into turn three and he's behind me. The race is basically over. Neither one of us is racing for the win. So why tear up somebody's race car? He wasn't going to pass anybody else with a turn and a half to go at Richmond. Not when there's a car in front of him. That was my whole point, And I guess that's why I got so upset. All of a sudden I had a tore up race car from no doings of my own from a car. I wasn't even racing against. Now I know that it would be a shock, but Robbie Gordon had a different opinion. (laughs) (laughs) And he said in this news item, I probably should have just buttoned my lip and drove back to the pits after he hit me and let him take the $10,000 fine. But I did what the engine builder said. He said, you run into him and you hit him (laughs) until he hits the wall. Well, okay. Engine builder. (laughs) Good night. Imagine that. Good night. (laughs) It was kind of stupid in the long run. I feel sorry for our guys because after the checkered flag, we had a perfectly good race car and to bring home a heap of junk is really a bummer. He destroyed the left side of it. And I destroyed the front end. Once my car was already wrecked, My rev limiter was up. (laughs) (laughs) Then finally, I want to know what you have to say for yourself about this one. But the caption on a photo on the news update page says that the two people pictured in this photo are Jeff Purvis and James Finch, who had parted ways on their Bush series team. Well, there's only one problem. The photo is actually of Jeff Purvis and Mark Reno, not James Finch. Mark Reno. So the cut line is wrong. And at the time you were the vice president of editorial development at Winston cup scene. So I want to know what you had to say for yourself for this cut line being wrong. Well, let's put it this way. You were the Bush series editor, (laughs) and that was a photo from the Bush series. Therefore (laughs) the buck stops with you. I was hoping you wouldn't notice that. (laughs) Hi, race fans. I'm Dave Marcus, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Well, Steve, Steve, I think that about does it for this episode. Stop that stuff. Will you stop it? I know you got a new toy. Quit playing with it. My eardrums are going bad. (laughs) Man, these are, I got some bells and whistles on this soundboard. (laughs) Oh, Lord help us all. I love it. All right. Okay. All right. Hey, after that, you might have a little bit of a problem giving us a five-star rating. (laughs) I don't know. But if you could be generous, give us a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes. Do the same for Firestorm. And again, it's not about getting a pat on the back, but it's about helping convince other people to listen to us. And that's a big thing. It may not seem like a big thing, but it is. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at scenevault at yahoo.com. And we'll talk to you next week. 
are you hearing me okay? Oh, yeah, fine. Okay. You're fine. Because we're still talking over each other a little bit. Yeah, that was my fault. Okay, all right, all right, cool, all right. As long as it's your fault, it's no problem. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a problem with that. No problem. (laughs) All right, you ready? 